This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. Delegations from nearly 200 countries came together earlier this month in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, for the United Nations 27th Climate Change Conference, referred to as COP27. The goal was to bring countries together to try to take action towards achieving the world's collective climate goals, as agreed to under the Paris Agreement in 2015. The consensus among many attendees was that COP27 was a disappointment. While wealthy nations did agree to create a program to address what's called loss and damage that aims to offset climate-caused financial damages to emerging economies. They did not finalize any agreement on funding for that program, and there was no formal decision to establish policies discouraging the use of fossil fuels. Most of the focus seemed to be on adaptation, meaning what will be needed after the Paris Accord's 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold for global warming is surpassed. On today's show, we're going to get a first-hand take on what happened over those two weeks in Egypt with three local activists who were part of a team that produced daily video updates summarizing what was unfolding at the conference, two of which were in Sharm el-Sheikh during COP27. I spoke with them last week. Let's hear that conversation now. Casey Schulberg is Collier County waterkeeper and a filmmaker. Casey, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. John Capice is Kissimmee waterkeeper. John, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And Val Holly Frank is a 19-year-old climate activist and member of the Seminole Tribe of Florida. Both her and John are members of what's called Campus Climate Corps. We'll talk about that in a bit. But Val Holly, thanks for joining us um, all the way from Egypt. Yeah, glad to be here. Thank you. Okay, Casey, let's start with you. Um, and before we get to some takeaways, I want you to describe what it is you and this team did in terms of you know creating updates, broadcasting what was happening throughout the conference, you know, there from Egypt. You were here anchoring, but describe how you got all that, all those parts in place and how yeah. it worked. Well, we kind of cobbled it together. We, we did this last year from Glasgow and uh, wanted to do it again from Egypt. I was supposed to go, had a little health wrinkle, so I had to stay here. And we kind of found a way for me to, to, to put the programs together from the U.S., with John and Val Holly and a team of about of, of three other people on the ground in Egypt. So we would decide what our topics would be based on what happened that day at the conference and uh, some interviews, some from people on the ground there and others from uh, interview candidates that I, that I wanted to bring into the show who were in the U.S. So we put basically about an hour an hour of programming together every day at the end of the conference. It, I watched uh, – I didn't watch them all, but I watched yeah. some of them, and it was really well done for the team you had and the, the challenges you were facing. Um, so now for some takeaways. I watched your 13th broadcast, which was not necessarily the last one. It was sort of the, the penultimate one. And you started by saying, quote, post-mortem may actually be the right term. Can you explain what you meant by that and what that's trying to capture? Well, a lot of the people who were following COP were very – discouraged by the lack of achievement, a lack of signed uh, multilateral agreements. Uh, at last year's COP, there were four signed. They were major agreements. And this year, we just couldn't get anything signed, and largely because uh, the uh, the underdeveloped countries, of which there are 134, kind of dug in their heels and said, we're not signing other agreements until this loss and damage uh, issue is addressed. And they could not get consensus on that until the 15th day of a 13-day conference. They finally dragged it across the finish line. But that it just created a logjam and a lot of other stuff didn't happen. So we were, we were very disappointed uh, with the actual tangible progress made at COP. It's just insufficient. Uh, 
given what you know the, the progress we need to make to, to achieve these goals. Explain uh, what's meant by loss and damage. So loss and damage is the idea that the developed countries who are responsible for uh, uh, for greenhouse gases and and a lot of the damage of climate change should underwrite those countries, the underdeveloped countries who didn't contribute to the crisis but are suffering harm. So it's basically sort of reparations. And uh, there's been resistance, uh, understandably, on the part of the, the developed nations, uh, largely the U.S. and Europe, uh, who are much wealthier nations. And it's sort of a – it's a, a bit of a developed – underdeveloped divide, but it's also considered a north-south divide where a lot of the less developed nations, whether in Africa, South America, some parts of Asia – uh, are are just less developed and less wealthy, and they're looking to the Western nations or the Northern nations to offset some of that damage in terms of and come up coming up with some cash. So uh, that that was a really really contentious issue all week long. And since the conference was taking place in Egypt, which is an undeveloped country, they were. C- also kind of leading the charge on on getting that issue front and center. Well, we'll have you explain in a little bit what, what agreement was reached on the 15th day. But, John, I'd like to pivot to you now. So what are your thoughts on sort of uh, Casey's characterization of the overarching, you know, conference? Well, the loss and damage issue was a, a primary focus at this COP. I've been attending the U.N. climate conferences since 2015 Paris, Oh, when I began bringing university students to attend the Conference of Youth and then the Conference of Parties, the main diplomats meeting. And our program is called Campus Climate Corps. So along with having uh, KC along with us to produce the waterkeeper briefings, we do daily briefings for university students around the country as well. And and for the listeners, I'd invite them to, to watch some of the uh, briefings that KC produced there. There's introduced by a, an excellent video that he put together that that drives home the, the point of climate change and, and why it's so important. But uh, on loss and damage, it's, it's one of really three issues. You've got mitigation, which is the actual reduction of greenhouse gas emissions to slow the rate of climate change. And then there's also the issue of adaptation to prepare our communities and society for the changes that are already in motion and are coming. And then there's loss and damage to help compensate the more vulnerable nations, which is the language they finally decided upon to address this issue. And what's interesting about loss and damage is it's a conversation that's been going on for 30 years. And when that conversation began, nations like China were highly underdeveloped. But 30 years later, not only are they much more developed, they are now the primary greenhouse gas emitter. So the question of where China falls in that as far as a donor nation or receiving nation was actually part of the discussion at COP27 as well. Um, John, what would you say your expectations were for COP27 and you know how much below those expectations would you characterize them being as it's unfolded? Well, when it comes to the United States' presence at COP27, I was impressed. The president was there, four cabinet officers, three governors, three U.S. senators, 21 U.S. representatives, and a large number of agency heads and and other technocrats. So it was an impressive 
uh, delegation. They announced a large number of initiatives and programs about how the United States is addressing both mitigation and adaptation. Uh, so we, we really put our best foot forward. But um, my impression of that was this would have been absolutely amazing had it happened at COP number two rather than COP number 27. Val, Holly, let's bring you in now. Tell us just a bit about yourself and about your work as an activist. Hey, yeah. Um, I've been doing activist work for basically my entire life. I've always been in those spaces. Um, It wasn't until uh, joining the Reynolds v. Florida lawsuit that happened a few years ago in Florida um, that I actually stepped up and started using my voice um, in these actions. And since joining that case, which was for... Those who don't know, it was a lawsuit brought in Florida suing the state departments and namely the governor, um, starting with Rick Scott and then Ron DeSantis, um, basically saying that Florida contributing to fossil fuel use um, is harming the current generations and will harm future generations. It violates our constitutional rights to life, property, happiness, and it violates the public trust doctrine. And it was sadly dismissed and without written cause either. Um, but it is one of many cases uh, that Our Children's Trust has brought. And there is the Juliana Gov that is the federal case. And there are multiple other state cases. And there's even a Canada case now. Um, but since joining that, I was a plaintiff on that. And since then, I've been to COP25 and, of course, now COP27. And I've just been uh, a lot more involved, especially when it comes to youth activism and indigenous activism. And, of course, all that comes with youth activism. So being very involved in the queer spaces and um, a lot of the radical and inclusionary action. How would you describe what you experienced at COP27 in terms of what you were hoping for versus what you saw being done and you know possibly achieved? Honestly, I didn't go in with any hopes because I, why would I? Um, but it was great to – honestly, the best part was the people, like the connections that I was able to make. Um, there were lots of indigenous folks, lots of young folks, and – it was amazing to be in a space where I was able to see how much is actually happening all around the world. Uh, heard of lots of great initiatives and resolutions that are coming out. A lot of great legal work too. Um, but the actual documents that came out of this COP, like John said, it would have been great if it had happened 20 years earlier. You know, it's a step forward, of course. But it's just our steps are much too slow. Um, one of the things that you reported on, uh, Casey, and um, I'll let you guys weigh in if, since you were there, but um, the lack of uh, any really presence in terms of people protesting or showing their discontent for what's not being done. Can you kind of just flesh that out? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't there on the ground like John and Val Holly were, but I could see, you know, there there was a a palpable dearth of protest, and uh, there was a there were brave small contingents of between fifty and a hundred uh, people 
uh, waving banners and but you know in, in, in the other the other cops have had huge civil society representation uh, in Glasgow on the first Friday of the conference we had twenty thousand people in the streets, largely students uh, and uh, environmental activists and some union members and the next day a hundred thousand and that puts pressure it puts pressure on the delegates it gets a lot of news and we had really an absence of that and i I think that you know it helps to create that cauldron or that crucible where stuff gets done when you have those those people you know, uh, uh, you know, applying that kind of pressure. I missed it. Uh, my my sympathies are always with the people in the streets. Uh, so I, I I I think that was really unfortunate and unfortunate on the part of the organizers to put it in a place that is remote, expensive, and and somewhat authoritarian. So that the you know protests and uh, that kind of participation representation w- could not could not uh, you know was not there. Uh, very unfortunate, in my opinion. Uh, John, if I if I'm not mistaken, you have attended more of these COP summits or uh, conferences than than um, Casey or Val Holly has. Was was did it feel different? Was the lack of protests happening something that was really palpable? And also, could you um, could you feel the people who were presenting not feeling the pressure? If that makes sense, the difference was stark. Yes. But as far as it affecting the pace of negotiations, I'm not so sure about that because all of these nations enter with negotiating positions and bottom lines based upon, you know, their national priorities and constraints. So really, that is if you're going to make a difference with protest, it needs to be back in the home nations of each delegation to change the marching orders that these representatives are issued upon their departure for the UN Climate Conference. So it's really important that students engage, that the public engages on this issue. It's a long-term issue. And one of the things you realize attending COP is that they uh, make agreements based upon what the politics of their nation allows and what the current level of technology and industrialization allows. So it's my opinion that these discussions and negotiations and agreements on reductions will not really make the difference. What will make the difference are the technological and, and production advances in the respective nations that make uh, greenhouse gas reductions possible and affordable. You know, in watching some of these broadcasts, it seems like, and I think, John, you were the one who I took note of, that you know some of the um, technological um, demonstrations that were put on there were impressive to some degree. Can you just flesh out some of the things that you saw that maybe, you know, give you the most hope for you know, ways forward technologically? Well, that's one of the things we, we focus on in, in both Campus Climate Four and Kissimmee Waterkeeper. Within the Waterkeeper movement, KC and I stress addressing climate and water issues in parallel. We try to emphasize the fact that we cannot, over the long term, effectively address our water problems unless we also address the climate issues because the climate forcing functions will overwhelm our actions on water. So there are various, you might call them technologies, you might call them just enlightened approaches as far as carbon uptake. When you do it in the aquatic environment, it's typically called blue carbon and things like seagrasses are very important to that. So there's a wide range of advances and activities and programs 
that can help mitigate greenhouse gas emissions and are being developed and presented there at COP on the biological side and on the high tech side. So we emphasize to university students that every single discipline at the university uh, has a role to play in addressing climate, including the social sciences. So one of the um, uh, one of the posters from a previous COP protest that I like to highlight in our slideshows is one with a woman holding a sign that said, study hard, protest harder. Um, we talked briefly at the beginning of the show about the uh, agreement of sorts that was reached on the 15th day of the conference, of 13-day conference, um, which does have to do with this loss and damage. Can you characterize what that is, Casey? Well, they, they established a fund and some of the countries committed actual dollar amounts and some of them have not and a lot of the uh, details have to be painted in this year. But there was broad consensus. Uh, they kind of dragged dragged into the into the final agreement. Um, but uh, nearly you know, almost it was almost unanimous when it was finally signed. There, I think there were close to 194 nations that signed the protocol saying that they would establish a fund, that the wealthier nations would establish a fund, and uh, there were certain parameters. I, it won't be nearly enough. I mean, it's estimated that underdeveloped countries will need 340 to $565 billion to cover loss and damage between now and the year 2050. And the amounts of money we're talking about are $150 million, $250 million. So it's You're not, saying billion versus million there. I just want to make yeah, that clear. Yeah. We're, we're talking about the underdeveloped nations all around the world will need between $350 and $550 billion yes. to, to offset the damage they're going to suffer. And what we're talking about at this conference is $150, $250 million by certain countries. So – you know, there's it needs to be it needs to be flushed out. A lot of the details were left unspecified, so they're taking a year to paint in some of those numbers. Uh, Val Holly, as a young climate activist, you know, what are your thoughts on the um, the need for there to be a grassroots push that gets policymakers' attention and the lack of it at this conference? It's so important to hear those local voices, of course, but. It's hard to ever imagine that they will be heard in a way that actually means anything to these policymakers. But yeah, those hearing what the people on the ground actually have to say and knowing what's actually plaguing these communities. And what's interesting is how a lot of these communities, especially especially indigenous communities, they know how to care for this land. They know how to prevent these issues and they could really heal the planet, but it's the money that talks. So <laughs> that's why there are so many people there representing fossil fuel companies. That's why OPEC was there. <laughs> um, it's important, and I think that should be the main voice at these. The main cause for change should be what you hear from those organizations, but from those people... But I don't think it will be if that's not too down hmm. for me to say. Um, John, and we've only got about three minutes left here, so we're kind of heading in for a landing. But um, in one of the final broadcasts, I think it was you or maybe it was – I think it was you. Somebody mentioned the idea that there might be a need for something like a shadow cop or something that is more close to the grassroots. Can you t describe what that means? Well, I believe – 
that every university ought to have a climate conference. And that's what we, we began participating in COP originally to do, to collect information, to broadcast back to university student conferences so that they would have content for their campus conferences. You know, we're very cognizant of our greenhouse gas impacts when we travel to these nations. So in 2015, our mission was to promote virtual poster sessions, university students participating virtually and then presenting research on the carbon benefits of that approach. Of course, COVID kind of forced everyone into the virtual space and took care of that. So now we're currently focused on developing these conferences at universities across the country and making sure that uh, students are, are engaged. Casey, um, last question. So it seems to me maybe that, you know, or obviously the work you and your team did is trying to do that. It's trying to instill the, the, the realization in people that they should be leaning into this and not just understanding it. We need about 10 times more money, about 10 times more awareness, and, and 10 times more people on the front lines fighting this fight. We're already at 1.1 or 1.2 degrees Celsius, about 2.4 above industrial, pre-industrial levels. We're cruising toward 2.5. So imagine, imagine the cat- catastrophes that are in store for us if we don't start to bend this curve. And there's a real, real urgency. We need to, we need to do this now. This is, no, this, is not, this is not a joke. This is coming at us faster than we think. And as Gal Gore said, it always takes longer than you ever think, and then it comes faster than you can imagine. And this is going to come at us. It's going to surprise everybody. So, you know, appreciate this show getting the word out because we need people to shake themselves out of their complacency and join. This is a pitch battle for the survival of the planet. Where can people find the uh, the, the videos that you produced? Well, they're on the Collier County Waterkeeper website and on our Facebook page, Collier County uh, Waterkeeper Facebook page. John, are the other videos that you guys produced adjacent to these, are those available to the public as well? Yes, on, on YouTube, the Campus Climate Core page, and on the Facebook page, they will be available soon, and the Facebook page of Kissimmee Waterkeeper. And uh, I'd like to emphasize that, you know, Southwest Florida is has a wealth of human resource talent. We have so many retired professionals from across the country. Uh, people are in a position to get involved in, in this issue by getting involved with Calusa Waterkeeper, um, Call Your County Waterkeeper, Kissimmee Waterkeeper, and even Campus Climate Corps. Uh, retired professionals or anyone in the community can get involved with these organizations and help make change and also help university students develop their skills and talents so they can make a a contribution over the duration of their careers. All right. Well, that is all the time we have. I'd like to thank my guests. John Capice is Kissimmee Waterkeeper. John, thank you so much for your time and for joining us from over there in Egypt. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Val Holly Frank is a 19-year-old climate activist and member of the Seminole Tribe of Florida. Val Holly, thanks to you as well. Of course. Thank you for having me. And Casey Schulberg is Collier County Waterkeeper and a filmmaker. Casey, thanks for coming in and helping put this together. Thank you, Mike. You always do your homework, so it's really a pleasure. 
You can find links to the daily broadcasts created by their team and by Campus Climate Corps on our website, wgcu.org gcl. If you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website or wherever you find podcasts. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island. 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida.